0: Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome to Football Social Daily, the only daily Premier League podcast. And right now, it is the very best way to keep up to date with the dizzying amount of top-flight football that is being flung in our general direction. We have a rare respite tonight. Actually, there's no games this evening, but there is still loads to talk about on today's podcast from last night's action. Manchester United made it five in a row against Aston Villa and are now playing the best football they've probably done so in almost a decade. Could they be title challengers next season? Tottenham failed to beat struggling Bournemouth, and even failed to get a shot on target during that game. Are the Spurs faithful regretting, thinking that they could be the ones to change Mourinho? And as it's Friday, it's the AQA show. All questions answered, We'll have more of your queries for the team in a little bit. And that team today is Niall McCorn. Hello, mate.
1: Hello, lads. Do you know what? I'm glad for a night off tonight because I need some sleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's relentless right it's now, isn't it? carnage. The problem I'm finding as well is I try not to drink in the week. I try not to have a beer. Uh, But because there's football on, I'm kind of having a beer most nights. I've tried the non-alcoholic stuff, and it's just not doing the job. Burnley versus Brighton? Get the cans out, lads. (laughs) Exactly. That's the only way to get through that kind of game. Uh, Stefan Armstrong's on the podcast as well. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Jim. I just want to extend an apology
2: early. The last time we did this podcast together... I slated you about West Ham and then they went on to beat Chelsea. So I'd like to apologise for that, but then I want to rescind that apology because then you (laughs) went and lost against Burnley. So there you are.
0: (laughs) It's the roller coaster of being a West Ham fan. Uh, I'm Jim Salverson, and thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Make sure you click subscribe so you never miss a show. We'll get these to you every single day whilst the season rumbles on, and there's a few weeks left of that. And don't forget, if you want to hear the latest news and reports direct from the Premier League, this isn't the only place to do so. You can also find on our brand new website or via smart speakers reports team updates, match previews, loads of that kind of thing. Just say Open Sports Social to your smart speaker or you can find us on our new website, sports-social.co.uk. Give it a go this weekend. So let's kick off with the first of last night's games. Bournemouth nil, Spurs nil. And not a single shot on target for Tottenham, which is the first time any team has done that against Bournemouth since Middlesbrough in the Championship in 2015. Dire... Unambitious, uninspiring, or to put it another way, Jose Mourinho esque. Can we blame Jose Mourinho for the way Tottenham Hotspurs are playing at the moment, Nile?
1: Oh, you've gone into the podcast, all guns are blazing, Jim. Oh, <laughs>
0: I love defending
1: Jose because I just love him as a man. I thought you can't was...
0: defend that last night.
1: No, you can't because I can. T- I can tell you the reason why because Bournemouth have conceded the most goals for a current Premier League club than any side that are still in the division since they got promoted. So in that five years that they've been in the top flight since 2015, no side that's still in the league has conceded more goals than Bournemouth. So for Spurs not to have a single shot on target, which extends back to Bournemouth's championship days, that is pretty telling. Considering the attacking talent that they've got on the pitch, you think of the likes of Son Heung-min and Harry Kane, those two alone Mm. should be able to register at least five or six shots between them. And it's quite unusual for... Uh, you know, an attacking side like Tottenham or a side littered with attacking players like Tottenham to not have any shots on target. Whether you can level that at Mourinho, I think there is an argument for that. Um, I did see hashtag Jose out trending on Twitter last night. Um, I thought that was a little bit, I thought it was a little bit uncalled for because, I mean, you could see in Jose's post-match interview, uh, even though he had some issues with Zoom after the game, he walked out of his Zoom press conference because he just couldn't hear anyone speaking. So, you know, you got a nice little bit of Jose drama at the end after the game. But the interesting thing about last night was Spurs were denied in the fourth or fifth minute an absolute stonewall penalty on Harry Kane, where Josh King pushed Kane in the back at a corner. Kane um, obviously felt the contact. The referee was unmoved. Michael Oliver was in the VAR truck at Stockley Park. Now, Michael Oliver is not Jose Mourinho's uh, biggest fan and vice versa. They've kind of had a little bit of a thing going on over the last couple of seasons, mainly Mourinho coming out and saying how he doesn't rate Michael Oliver as a referee, which is contrary to what the rest of the country thinks because everyone seems to think he's the best referee around at the moment. Anyway, the drama ensued because Oliver was in the VAR truck, Spurs were denied a stonewall penalty, and although Mourinho said after the game, listen, it wasn't a vintage performance, we didn't play well, but we did do enough to win. Well, I wasn't so sure about that. The penalty should have stood. VAR made a bit of a stinker and that was one of three stinkers across yesterday's games, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But Tottenham, to be Mm. fair, should have done more. Toothless in attack. They were camped in their own half for the first 45 minutes, it felt like, for a while. Um, And yeah, it's a poor showing from Tottenham. I mean, you could argue that Bournemouth are fighting for their lives and they knew that with Aston Villa going to uh, host in Manchester United they did have a chance to kind of claw some points back. They've ended their unbeat un- they've ended their losing streak Bournemouth, but they're still 3 points from safety. So yeah, I mean you have to say poor from Spurs, but from a Mourinho perspective, I think we should give this some some sort of we should put this into context here. Jose Mourinho took over uh, the back end of 2019 when Maurizio Pochettino was strangely sacked. I think Spurs, we all knew they were going through a rough patch, but to sack Pochettino, no one really expected it. To replace him with Mourinho, I mean, a lot of people are saying it could be a great move. The thing is, people will say, Jose's been in the job, what, 10 months or whatever, or eight months, nine months, and he's only done this. Well, you've got to remember, three and a half of those months, there have been no football played. So it can be easy to skew those stats. I still think you need to give him a, a bit of a chance. I mean, Mourinho, how often has he come into a side midway through a season? I don't think I've e- I have can ever remember Jose Mourinho taking over a side midway through a Premier League season or any no. season. He tends to come in in the summer, spend a bit of cash, leave his mark on the squad and start afresh from the beginning of the season. So I think it's only fair from what we've seen of Mourinho in his career that you do give him at least the start of next season, the summer. And if he's not up to it by Christmas, then maybe you can start thinking about replacing him again. So that would be my... Jump to the defence of Jose Mourinho as a manager, as a performance. I don't think you can really defend that display from Tottenham. It was uh, pretty turgid, as you say, Jim.
0: I think, I suppose, and Manchester United fans are pointing this out to Tottenham fans. They're kind of going, you knew what you were getting. This was always going to be the case. You were going to get this style of football. It's like appointing Sam Allardyce and expecting Pep Guardiola-style football. It's just not going to happen. You're going to get Jose Ball. That's exactly what he's going to bring to your club, but he might win stuff in the process. You said that Tottenham might be a fault, feel hard done by by not getting the penalty, but Hugo Lloris made a couple of decent saves against Bournemouth. They had two goals disallowed as well. Who will feel the harsher done by, Stefan, from that game?
2: I think the general punter watching the game will feel harsher done by than anybody else. <laughs> 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 but that aside... Um... I think it's a bit rich from Jose coming out so angry last night because a few decisions went his way as well. I think um, Callum Wilson's effort, which hit... Was it Joshua King on the arm? Mm. I think... Yeah. Okay, in, in Premier League's gone by, that goal would have stood. I love I love the accidental handball rule where a where, where game just plays on. I don't understand why every slight graze of the ball against an arm or a hand it just it really annoys me because that could have been a great result for Bournemouth last night and Bournemouth had the better chances last night and probably should have won the game so I feel hard I feel I feel like Eddie Howe's been hard done by last night to be honest with you and Jose Mourinho I'm, I love him I'm a massive fan of him but it was a bit rich coming out so angry last night on Harry Kane uh, Harry Kane's uh, penalty which definitely was a penalty of course it was but Eddie Howe's also got reason to feel a little bit hard done by.
0: It was one of those goals, or one of those decisions to rule out a goal that you'd be absolutely furious if it was your team that had the goal disallowed. But at the same time, you'd be absolutely furious if it was allowed and you're on the opposition side. It kind of depends which prism you're looking it through to which side of the argument you're on there. Was there enough I just I just don't like these new football rules to be honest with you, Jim. No. Niall, when when we when we were growing up,
2: accidental handball was the best thing to shout out as soon as, as soon as the ball went near your hand. Accidental, mate, accidental. Game played on. And it it kinda makes sense. Like it, it's gonna happen in the game of football that the ball mm. accidentally hits somebody ha- somebody's hand. So I think what you oh. what you've got
1: to think as well, would it have gone in anyway? I mean, I think that's yeah, the difference. If it was going wide and it deflected off of his arm and went into the net, then then obviously, I'm not talking about this example specifically, but I'm talking in general. You know, if you volleyed the ball against someone's arm and it was hitting the corner flag and then it deflects in, then obviously you should give a handball. But if it just kind of grazes the outside of someone's finger and kind of brushes their finger and doesn't really alter the trajectory or make the ball deviate, then I think, you know, you can probably get, get away with not giving that decision. But as we say, the handball rules is about as about as clear as Boris Johnson's post-lockdown rules, to be honest with you, is absolutely muddled up and all over the place. So, you know, we we don't really know what the situation is going to be with that. But I I feel we could see another rule change in the summer. If
0: it hits your hand and it doesn't hit your hand, if it doesn't hit your hand, and it hits your hand, and it's handball and it's not handball. Yeah, I kind of get what you mean there. The German uh, Boris there. (laughs) Was there enough of a glimmer of light for Eddie Howe to think that they can potentially get out of the mess they're in? I mean, we were saying on yesterday's podcast, that was it. Well, I was saying that that was it. That Bournemouth were relegated, Norwich were down, Aston Villa were down. Getting a point isn't going to do them any good. But are, are there enough signs of there enough green shoots to think maybe they can just cling on this season? No,
2: no, they're down, Jim. Just look at the next the, the fixture list. The next four games they've got Leicester, Man City, Southampton, and Everton. Bar Everton, they're all really quite informed teams, like who have got a lot to play for, especially Leicester City. Everton probably, yeah, Everton have still got a lot to play for, to be honest, as well. So I I agree. I
1: think they're down, but those last two games could be huge Everton and Southampton. Let's not forget that Bournemouth consider Southampton as their local rivals, not so much the other way around. Southampton aren't really too asked about their their neighbours uh, from Dorset. So I think that game is always quite close, to be honest. I really I really don't think that that, um, that game will be as easy for Southampton as some people think. And Everton are a bit hit and miss, aren't they? I mean, mm. they they you know they scraped um, a 1-1 draw, really, against Southampton last night when Southampton were by far the better team. But, of course, we'll come on to that in a sec.
0: Well, do you know what? Let's talk about that now. I was going to do Manchester United next, but we'll save that till last because there isn't a massive amount to say between... Everton and Southampton, who played last night, a 1-1 draw. It just looked to me, Niall, like it was two teams who were on the beach. They were thinking about their summer holidays, weren't they?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we said this on yesterday's show about how these two teams would have been relegation candidates as recently as Christmas. And then you look to the the table now and they're pretty much both safe and playing Premier League football for another season, which is why you should give credit to both managers, Haas and Hertel uh, and Carlo Ancelotti, um, after the jobs that they've done. So, yeah, I mean, it did feel a little bit like that. I mean, but f- but for me, from, from seeing um, chunks of the game and, and the highlights afterwards, it looked like Southampton were by far the better team. I mean, that pains me to say and come on, Everton, pull your <laughs> finger out. But certainly um, they looked like the side that was most up for it during, during that game, particularly in the first half where Everton didn't really get a sniff. Southampton had a goal ruled out early on. Um, Then there was a couple of dubious decisions again, VAR coming into the game where Southampton were awarded a penalty, which just wasn't a penalty. And you know, the shocking thing is that the Premier League match officials uh, group, I can't remember what they're called, PGMOL, I think they're called. have come out and said that three decisions, one of them in the Man United game as well, that they made last night through VAR, three penalty decisions were all incorrect, which makes me think, what is the point? What is the point? Honestly, that's, that's what they've come out and said. Yeah. So the, the penalty on Kane should have been a penalty, wasn't given. Penalty on James Ward-Prowse, um, which was given, shouldn't have been given. And then the same with Manchester United and Bruno Fernandes, which we'll come on to, where he was awarded a penalty when actually it was a foul on a, on the Aston Villa player. Wow. And VAR three times has got it wrong. Now, what is the point? If we're using this technology, Is there to make the game better and make decisions right. Now, if, if you, you'll see these stats at the end of the season that will come out that say, oh, there's this percentage of decisions have been made correctly because of VAR, and VAR has improved the general decision-making in the game. You will see some sort of fudge stats coming out back in VAR. Well, those stats have been damaged massively by three games last night where there are three incorrect decisions. And although it's good that the board have come out and been credible for the fact that their referees have made mistakes, it shouldn't be happening. It should not be happening. I don't understand and how kind of... it is
0: happening. I don't understand I don't how, understand. with the technology that's there, it's still getting got wrong. It, it makes no sense.
1: And also, as well, Pier Luigi Colina, remember him? The bald Italian ref, the really mm. scary-looking one with the big bulging eyes? He's the head of referees at FIFA. Mike Riley is the head of referees at the Premier League. Now, Pierluigi Colina has come out and also said that VAR will be blanketed across all leagues in the coming seasons, possibly starting from next season, which means mm. that the interpretation that the Premier League have of VAR is different to what we see in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Now, Ligi Kalina wants to stop that and he wants VAR in the Premier League to be the same as everywhere else. And I think that could only help us. It might be a bit weird and we might see some dodgy decisions. We, we already are. But certainly, for us to get used to it, we're going to have to fall in line with other countries. We've Mm. tried so many times to try and go off and do our own thing. You know, almost arrogant from the Premier League, like we're going to change the transfer window and make it better for us. And all the other leagues went on your own, lads. We're not taking part in that. And it left the Premier League high and dry. It put the league at a disadvantage. I think this incarnation of VAR and the way it's been rushed in for the start of this season with little to no room for testing so for instance they could have tested it in just the Carabao Cup for one season or the FA Cup and saw what happened but no it was just thrown straight in there and I think it's been a bit of a disaster I've got to be honest with you
2: it's simple it goes back to the very essence of of football indecisions is that it's subjective and people see the game in different lights so what difference does it make if if the uh, end conclusion goes to a referee who's in Stockley Park or a referee on the pitch they're both looking at the same situation mm. no. Um with with different interpretations so there's literally no point in it it's it's a completely different thing to goal line technology where it is black and white this is this is completely different so please 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 pierre luigi cleaner get rid of it
0: (laughs) i want to come back briefly to that news about fifa taking control of var in a little bit but just to Focus back on the game, Everton versus Southampton. Danny Ings scoring again. I've watched that goal a few times and I can't decide whether it's clumsy or whether it's a piece of uh, very astute football kind of taking the ball away from Jordan Pickford, who probably again should have done better and slotting it in the net. How... I mean... it. it I find it really difficult to give Danny Ings any credit at all because he doesn't. <laughs> I'm constantly surprised that he's bagging goals this season, but he does seem to be the real deal now, Stefan. And I suppose I've, I've never been his biggest fan, Jim. But I've got to say that
2: I've, last night, I know what you're saying. It, it didn't look too pleasant on the eye, but I think that's a great bit of skill. Uh, the way the way he kind of got it out of his feet and then manoeuvred himself and then managed to get the finish on it as well. Hmm. That's a, that's a great bit of football. It reminds me of the old saying, you couldn't get the ball off him in a telephone box. It was that it was that nimble, it was that agile. So big big up to him. Yeah, well done, Danny Ings. And he's he's having the season of his life. And that's kind of the problem that this will probably be the season of his life scoring nineteen twenty goals.
0: Well, do you think someone else will take a punt on him? We saw him move from Burnley to Liverpool. They took a punt and it didn't quite work out at Liverpool. Largely due to injuries, it has to be said. Is someone going to come in, maybe like an Everton, and poach Danny Ings away from Southampton this summer?
1: I think you have to think about Danny Ings in terms of what he's been through in the last couple of years of his career. Obviously, he went to Liverpool, as you mentioned, from Burnley. Um, It was a big chance for him playing for a huge football club under a manager in Jurgen Klopp, who you know, had this great vision and that's a vision which has now come to light, of course. But obviously injury plagued, as you mentioned, and he had real troubles with that. So to get his career back on track and to kind of keep himself mentally fresh and again, a fresh start and almost going back to basics, he went down to Southampton. He grew up in Winchester, which is sort of a Southampton strong stronghold just down the road. Um, so it kind of feels a little bit like home for him. And I think that is probably adding to the fact uh, that he's scoring so many goals this season. That's 19 now. He's just mm-hmm. a couple away from Jamie Vardy, who's uh, leading the Golden Boot race. Pierre Emerick Aubameyang's in there as well for the race for the Golden Boot. But I can't see him going back up, back up to the northwest. If I'm honest, I can't see him playing for Everton next season. I think he would rather stay at Southampton than play for Everton. I think Southampton obviously had an early scare this season with you know relegation threats and you know losing 9-0 to Leicester was a damaging blow but they stuck with Ralph Hasenhurst they kept faith with him um and it looks like you know th- that they might they're quite confident in him building something now i do think that southampton's uh away record is absolutely shock uh, sorry home record is absolutely shocking so they need to sort that out if they are going to really have any chance of finishing in the top 10 next season which you'd think would be their ambition So going to somewhere like Everton, although they've got a project, they've got a plan, from what you saw last night, would you really trade um, your place where you're home, you're happy, you're bagging goals, you like the manager, you're guaranteed game time, you kept yourself fit. Would you really swap that for Everton at this moment in time? I mean, you'd have to have a lot of faith in Everton's vision. I do think someone might come in for him However, I do think it's also a case of is it a one-season wonder, like Stefan said. Is it a season of his life? We've seen Danny Ings be consistent over time, but he's never been prolific. This season, he's been prolific. I mean, it makes you wonder why. Do you remember Kevin Phillips um, back in the late I was going 90s, to draw early a comparison 2000s? with Kevin Phillips, yeah. Because he used to he used to be very similar. He scored loads of goals for Sunderland and Southampton. He played for too, I think, as well. Where he was top scorer in the Premier League for one season. I think he outscored Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry at yep. one point as well. So, you know, this is this is a guy, Kevin Phillips, who's played until he was about forty. Did have a few injuries, but used to bag goal after goal after goal. But he never played for a big club really, and it never really happened for him. I've just got a feeling that that's going to be the same with Danny Ings, and I don't know why.
0: I think you might be right. And we were talking yesterday about Carlo Ancelotti and whether he is going to spend money in the summer, how he's going to strengthen. There is a report today that he has told reporters that he has been assured from the board, whatever that means, that the club is going to improve his squad in the summer. So it looks like he will have money to spend. And interestingly, it's Southampton defender Pierre Emlyn Heuberg, is it? Yeah, Hoibier, yeah, who uh, is top of his list apparently to go into that Everton back four right let's talk about Manchester United it was the game of the evening it was Aston Villa-Nil it was Manchester United three five wins in a row from Manchester United 16 goals scored in those five games and they are genuinely looking impressive at the moment is it too early to start talking about title challenges next season Stefan?
2: yeah <laughs> but only just too early, if you get what I mean. I think, look, look Man United, they're looking dead sharp at the minute. But they've kind of done this before when Oli first took over and had a really, really good run of form and then failed to back it up. So I want to see Man United go and back it up. So that means, A, this summer, spending a bit of money on a top-class defender, uh, potentially another midfielder, winger. And then just go ahead and challenge for it and and maintain what they're doing now because right now, I'm going to say it right now, they're the best team in England, I think.
0: Yeah, well, the form certainly backs that up and they've got a front three that are scoring goals for fun at the moment. The stats this season are really interesting on front threes. Rashford, Martial and Greenwood, between them, have got 55 goals. Salah, Mane and Firmino have got 54 goals. Messi, Suarez and Fatty have got 51 goals and the most, I mean, out of front threes, you've got to look at Sterling Aguero-Mares who have got 59 goals between them. But with an average age of 21 between those three for Manchester United, that is a striking partnership in rude health, Nile.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And... Mason Greenwood's been so impressive. His goal last night was just, again, absolutely brilliant. The way he strikes the ball, he just connects so cleanly. It's so pure and he's he, he strikes the ball almost mis- with missile-like accuracy. The way that the ball's got barely any spin on it and it just kind of sails into the net. The last person I th- I think I can think of who struck the ball like that for Manchester United was probably either Ronaldo, and we know to go on what he's done, but, but Paul Scholes. He used to be able to strike the ball from, from outside the box like that and... The benefit for Greenwood is that he's a striker. He's so young and he's both footed and he can take dead ball situations as well. He can take free kicks. I mean, I've seen a couple of uh, games that he's played for Manchester United under 23s before he was sort of drafted into the first team where he would take a free kick with his left foot and smash it top corner. And in the same game, he'd do it with his right foot and do the same thing. So, I mean, he's absolutely two-footed. I think the question is whether players are going to put too much pressure on him. Sorry, whether fans are going to put too much pressure on him because he is still very young. Um, but to score the amount of goals he scored this season, um, you have to give him immense credit. I mean, he seems just to have... be
2: handling that pressure quite well, though, to be honest, Mason Greenwood.
1: Yeah, he is. And I think also as well, you just got to think about what some other players who have kind of made it big young have said about their careers injury-wise. I think it's really yeah. important. I mean, going Gunnar Solskjaer now is probably going to think, well, I'm not changing anything because he's had a bit of a bumpy ride as Manchester United manager. When things aren't going well, he's not good enough. He's the guy that took Cardiff down. Um, when Manchester United do doing well, Ollie's behind the wheel. Oli's the saviour. He's the next Sir Alex Ferguson. So I think Solskjaer's aware of that. But I also think that whilst... They're in a rich vein of form. He's not going to rest Greenwood. And although there's only three or four games left to go until the end of the season and he's a young lad and he can recover and all the rest of it. If you listen to what other young English strikers have said about when they've kind of burst onto the scene, I'm thinking about the likes of Michael Owen. Um, His career was over by the time he was 30, really because of injury because he played too many games when he was between the age of 17 and and 24 so I think that might be a a big issue to kind of not to wrap Greenwood in cotton wool because he's very very useful but just really look after him because we do have a great talent on on our hands and you know if you look what they've produced over the last couple of years Rashford uh, coming through the academy as another one I I genuinely think Greenwood could be up there and be as good if not better than Rashford in the next few seasons I really really do I think He's got all the talent in the world. I haven't seen him score a header yet, but I don't think he'll need to. If he can get the ball at his feet um, using left foot, right foot, whatever, then yeah. Um, <laughs> he won't
2: need to score a header. He won't need to score he'll, a header at all. the perfect hat-trick then. you will never do your left foot, right foot header.
1: Well, I tell you what, someone tweet me when it happens because I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll see that. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, Mason Greenwood will go, he'll be one of those players like, you know, Peter Crouch has scored loads of headers um, in his career, the most ever for a Premier League player. And then there's something like, is it, Uh, Teddy Sheringham only ever scored one goal outside of the box in his hundred odd (laughs) goals or something like that yeah I think so so it's going to be one of those sort of players I think where Mason Greenwood's (laughs) going to score loads of goals but not many of them will be headers not that that matters because as you say front three in rude health and you know Manchester United have turned it around the second half of the season interestingly enough they're playing a bunch of teams between now and the end of the season that they all pretty much lost to in the first half of the campaign so yeah we'll have to see Mm. what happens
0: It's all looking very rosy at Manchester United right now. And you can see that confidence permeating through the team as well. I mean, I thought Paul Pogba was excellent last night. I thought his finish for the goal was superb as well because he was going to smash it and he got closed down quickly and he just kind of dinks it around the corner. It was a deft finish. And even Luke Shaw is playing well at the moment, which just shows how much confidence there is in that team. You probably couldn't say the same for Aston Villa. And it was a dodgy penalty call on the half-hour mark that kind of did for them. Bruno Fernandes, span round, fell over, stamped on the opposition and somehow won a penalty for that. I'm not sure how that is a penalty, but it was a penalty. But it really seemed to knock the stuffing out of Villa. It kind of knocked the fight out of them. Is it that relegation is dawning on them, that that's it for the season and... Just that confidence is slowly ebbing away.
2: Even Wan-Bissaka, by the way, nearly scored a goal last night for Man United. Now, that shows <laughs> yeah. confidence. Because he's never scored, has he? Unbelievable. Not for United. Yeah. Um, Villa were a bit unfortunate in terms of the penalty because they had the better of Man United for the first 20 minutes. And Trezeguet hitting the post kind of summed that up it could have gone the other way and then this penalty decision happens and it just all goes wrong and you could you could almost see dean smith on the sideline he knew exactly what was going to happen as soon as that penalty went in he knew that they were going to go on to lose three potentially even four five nil by the end of the game it was actually quite lucky that it was only three nil so i feel for aston villa but they've been in this situation kind of all season so i think i think you get what you deserve in the long run and there's no excuses for where they are in the table. They just let in so many goals. So I felt for them last night. It's not the way that I wanted to see Man United go one up. But I guess I guess that's football. And I, qu- I quite liked Roy Keane's analysis on it last night where he was saying um, you need to get punished for being a clumsy defender sometimes. And that's what it was. It was a clumsy challenge, although really having looked at it again and again and again it was a foul on the Villa defender so it was mm. unfortunate because for the first 20 minutes they were better they had their chance they hit the post and then it just all went wrong and that sums up Villa's season in a nutshell
0: and it gets from bad to worse for Villa as well there were reports this morning that a deal has been agreed for Jack Grealish to leave Aston Villa and go to Manchester United for a fee of 80 million pounds how accurate, though... That's a lot for Jack
2: Grealish. Do it you not think? It does seem like a
0: lot. Particularly in the current market, it seems like a lot. Do you know where that's we'll, come
1: from? Do you know what that source is, Jim? Uh,
0: I think it's, from, uh, one of the, it's was it from one of the Manchester United kind of fanzine type <laughs> places. I think it might be from Stretty News or someone like that, so again, how reliable it is. We, we don't know <laughs> Stretty at News. The moment. Something like that. Um, let's touch briefly on VAR there, because we said we're going to come back to this, and it's a report in the Times that you were referring to earlier, Niall, that basically the rules surrounding var are going to be centralized so it won't be up to the individual clubs to decide how it's going to be implemented it will be up to fifa which i think as you said earlier niall it does feel like the right move doesn't it because if var is going to work it needs to be the same in every instance there needs to be a way it's executed whether that's in the FIFA World Cup final or whether it's in Brighton versus Burnley on a Tuesday night, Stephen?
2: Yeah, 100%. Uh, Why why has it been given the opportunity to be different and to be fragmented? Why have different football associations... Because it's our football, it's our
0: rules, we're going to do what we want... (laughs)
2: Is is that not is that not typical like Brexit. of Brexit of of the British climate right now? It's our way is the best way. Yeah. We invented football. We're going to bring it back home. It does my head in, Jim.
0: It really does my head in. And interestingly, and... the Premier League has probably done the worst job out of all the European leagues at executing it. There doesn't seem to be the same kind of in every league there are concerns about how it's implemented, yeah, when, but there doesn't seem when, to be the same when, kind d- of concerns during... in the Bundesliga.
2: Yeah, during lockdown, that's exactly what I was going to say. During lockdown, um, when the Bundesliga was pretty much the only league playing football, everybody kind of naturally gravitated towards watching a bit of German football. I never saw these kind of decisions in that league. Um or at least they never they never took a, a stranglehold on the game like they seem to do almost on every occasion. It's
1: because German people have common sense,
2: Stefan. <laughs> German y- people have look, actual now, common now sense. No, no, you don't British need to tell don't. me that. And that's that's why that's why I'm taking this common sense <laughs> approach to VAR. I just I just don't get it. And the other sad thing about it is, it's it's kind of limiting free speech as well. Because every single manager who had a bad decision made against them last night, they all said in their interviews, "I can't tell you my opinion on this because I'll get fined. I don't want to." tell you about this Jose Mourinho was speaking as a collective about everybody everybody saw it like this they're all being so so cautious about what they say because they know as soon as they say anything against VAR or a referee in Stotley Park who's made the decision they're going to get hefty heavy fines so yeah I think that it's it's kind of ruining that does my
1: head in as well Stefan that does my head in as well because especially when managers I mean especially they have to be interviewed because of TV broadcasting rights, within, I think, 10 minutes after the full-time whistle, they have to be on the touchline speaking to the television broadcasters. Now, if you've just been denied a last-minute penalty or something by VAR, you're going to be fuming as a football manager. So you're kind of in that cauldron of of emotion at that period of time, straight after the decision's been made, straight after the game, and you've got to come out to the broadcaster and give a composed uh, uh, interview it's, it's going to be almost impossible to contain your anger, especially if you're someone as passionate as a Mourinho or there's something as big on the line as Aston Villa have got right now. You know, that could have cost them a place in the Premier League. I mean, they might point to this if they do go down. Obviously, as you say, it's been a whole season's worth of work to kind of put them in that position, um, which can the fingers can be pointed at that. But still, it's so difficult for, for managers. And I think the way it goes at the moment where it's like, I can't say anything because I'll get in trouble. I think that's just to stop Managers saying the referee's a disgrace and he should never referee a game again, which is what (laughs) Alex Ferguson used to say. Whereas now, if the manager comes out and says, listen, I think it's the wrong decision, it's poor, it's unacceptable, they've made a mistake, I'll wait for an apology... They shouldn't be fined for that because if as long as they're not slagging off individual referees and listen, humans make mistakes. If the referee makes a mistake and he says he should never referee a game again, he's a disgrace. Then yeah, you should be fined. But if you say the referee's made an error and I don't like it and I want an apology, I don't see
2: I don't see what's wrong. Uh, did with you that. see the um, post match interview with Mourinho last night on Sky Sports? Yeah, a little bit. He he didn't he didn't
1: really say anything because he knew he'd get in trouble.
2: He didn't say much, but. It, go, back, go back to it and watch it again because it's hilarious. I don't know the name of the, um, of the reporter who's reporting him, but she takes the approach that the uh, big brother used to take on Channel 4 in diary room, where she kept, she kept on asking Mourinho, like, and how does that make you feel? And that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, and, and it was really, really, really good television. So I highly recommend people to have a look at that. It was really good.
1: I think, um, I think as well, building on your earlier point, Jim, Um, it reminds me of uh, cricket and I know a lot of people probably aren't that interested in cricket but cricket obviously it's one sport with lots of different disciplines you've got red ball white ball Um, it's the same game but played in a slightly different way now that's how football feels at the moment it feels like you've got Premier League and their incarnation of VAR and then when teams go into the Champions League VAR is implemented differently by European referees and it just feels a bit weird like why should a Premier League side have to kind of Alter the way that they play the game and look for fouls and you know the expectation of certain decisions just because the referees are from a different country. I don't think that should be the case. I mean, like you say, I mean, a blanket kind of VAR implementation from FIFA might be the way forward, but you know, for instance, you know, certain rules are different in certain formats of cricket, shouldn't really be like that in football. Um, and that's the way it looks at the moment. It looks like you know, in the Champions League. Referees are making different decisions to that in the Premier League, and there needs to be some level of consistency.
0: We're going to take a little break now on Football Social Daily. We'll be back in a minute with the AQA portion of the podcast. All questions answered. We'll be answering your questions that you have submitted via our social media accounts. Stay there. We'll be back in a second on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Hello, welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. It is the Friday podcast, which means it's the AQA podcast. All questions answered. You can get your questions in for this portion of the podcast, by the way, on Twitter, The Sports Social, on Instagram, Sports Social Official, or you can head to our website, sports social.co.uk. All the social links are there including how you can listen to sports social updates and match reports via your smart speakers. All the info is there, sports-social.co.uk. But we've got three questions that we've picked from your submissions today, and it starts with Pradhan, so Sanji Pradan on Twitter, whose first question is, now that Liverpool have nothing to play for, should they just treat the rest of the season as pre-season? Forget about records and focus on blooding the wider squad Get their mentality right for next season. Stop their top players from mental tiredness or stupid injuries. It's a really interesting point that Sanji makes. Niall, do you think? I mean, it's not what Liverpool are going to do, clearly, because they're gunning for the hundred points total. They seem driven towards getting that. But should they be taking that approach? That's the question.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely one hundred percent not. You don't. I know that they've won the league and. People might say, oh, well, what about next season? Well, we've seen that it doesn't look like Liverpool are really going to strengthen in the summer, which will concern some Liverpool fans. They've missed out on Timo Werner. There's been reports in the last couple of days that Thiago Alcantara from Bayern Munich is going to come and join Liverpool. He's approaching 30. It doesn't really make much sense in terms of their traditional transfer strategy under Klopp so far. So I don't think they should be considering this as a pre-season because they've still got something to play for. That points record, and Jurgen Klopp wants that points record, as you say, Jim. They're not going to take their foot off the gas. They shouldn't take their foot off the gas. And the reason they shouldn't as well, even though they're not going to be as up for it, obviously. But the reason that they shouldn't take their foot off the gas is because there are plenty of other teams along uh, in the Premier League table that have still got loads to play for. And, you know, you're talking about the integrity of the competition if Liverpool turn up and play their kids and get rolled over by five teams at the end of the season and that results in West Ham going down, you're, understandably, Jim, as a West Ham fan, you're going to be absolutely But from raging. a selfish
0: point of view, from Liverpool's point of view, for exactly the reasons you mentioned, because they're not going to strengthen massively, or certainly that's how it looks in the summer, we're not going to have a long... Break between the seasons, we don't think they've
1: had three months off, Jim. They've had three and a half months off of football, but why not which is longer you, why than a not normal Why not give pre-season? yourself the
0: advantage? Why not re- p- play this incredibly intense way it's, of football? It's,
1: it's, it's, it's no different because if we have a two week break between the end of this season and the start of next season, which I think is looking like it's going to be uh, the end of August, start of September, uh, that's what I've been told, but I don't know that for certain. But if there is a couple of weeks break, maybe the Champions League finishes in early August, the Premier League season finishes end of July, and then we start again maybe the end of August, so a three-week break. That's no different mm. to really having like an international break. Is it? No. It's just except you get your players have a couple of days off.
0: I suppose, as you say, so they've had it's no diff- at a different point, haven't they?
1: Exactly. It's no different to, to having a break. I mean, we've already had the pre-season period. Let's just treat this as a new season that started at the beginning at the middle of june 17th of june the first premier league game after the restart we're all stuck in our ways in terms of the convention of the football season it has to start at the beginning of august it has to end at the beginning of may well unfortunately that's not the case it hasn't been the case this season so let's just treat it as the start of a new football period let's call it that it might be a different season when this one ends technically and the new one starts, but it's still a period of playing <laughs> games for a certain amount of time. You're sounding more and more see, like
2: Boris every day now. I don't see <laughs> the problem.
1: I don't see the problem. Why, why is everyone so hung up on this? They've just had three months off. They've still been able to train, okay, not as vigorously because they, cause they give, weren't allowed to they into could the training ground give for themselves ages. an
0: advantage. I guess that's the argument, isn't it? It's not. An advantage for what? I mean, for Jim, having I'd, fresher I'd, players. I don't but think I mean, it's a an advantage. What's three-week break
2: gonna do? It's not an advantage it's football obviously take man united right now football is all about momentum so i think if liverpool i'm not going to say start slacking off but if they start doing massive rotation and bringing in lots of youth players and in the hope of giving them some experience they're not really giving them that great an experience but they're going to lose a lot of their momentum they're going to go into next season or as now says after the international break Mm. um with with a mentality which, which is different to what they've been all season, which is just full-out gung-ho attack, and that's what suits Liverpool, so it's not going to be an advantage for Liverpool to start changing things about a little bit. The advantage for Liverpool right now would be to break some records. Okay, because that, that that come that, because when when they start again next season they are they're not only the Premier League champions they're the record breakers and that's massive that's that's a big psychological thing so Liverpool should go for everything that
0: they can possibly get this season and I think that's exactly what they're going to do Sand. I hope that answers your question. No, you've got the next one.
1: Yeah, I do. This one comes from Paolo on Twitter. He says Norwich are known to have a plan for relegation and don't seem to be that bothered. Do other teams have this? If not, why not? I suppose none of us would really know if other teams do
0: have this, but
1: it certainly feels like it wouldn't be the
0: stupidest thing to do, Jim. I don't think Norwich do have a plan for relegation. I think they've more been cautious in promotion. They didn't get overexcited about being in the Premier League and they made sure their finances were in a situation that if they do go down and they look like, to all intents and purposes, they will go down, they're not going to go bankrupt in the process of they don't come straight back up again. So I don't think it's necessarily having a plan for relegation. I think and I might be might be a matter of semantics here. I think it's more a case of not overcommitting themselves to potentially staying in the Premier League. And potentially maybe that's because Norwich would find it very difficult to have a sustained spell in the Premier League more than maybe other clubs. They've got a quite limited fan base because of geography. They got A massive city with loads of football clubs to the west that's going to attract fans that would maybe naturally be Norwich City fans. And it's tough to see how, as an entity, as a club, they would attract the major investment that maybe the likes of Newcastle are doing currently. So, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily them planning for relegation. I think it's potentially more about them going, let's not get overexcited. We know this isn't long term. We're going to be able to take TV money in from the Premier League. Let's not overcommit ourselves and make sure we've still got a football club in five years. So I'm sure more clubs should potentially take that approach. And we see all the time other clubs getting into financial messes because they do overcommit. But there are the likes of Norwich and the likes of Burnley I put into this category as well. That are just financially sensible, and it might cost them their Premier League status, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. Of course, it should. But I don't know what I don't know where to begin by suggesting what that plan should be. I don't know if if Norwich have had a relegation plan for for a certain period of time. I would suggest that Norwich are maybe the only club who have been afforded the luxury of time through such a bad position in the table for such a long time to uh, have already started uh, planning for Championship life next season. I've, to be honest with you I, I have no idea what I would say is Norwich and Bournemouth I think it affects them less if they get relegated than if good old West Ham get relegated and that's where it's interesting I think Norwich they, they haven't spent the same amount of money their wage bills completely different it's not so much of an overhaul and potentially that's why they'll have a better attempt at coming back up next season Whereas a West Ham you need to get rid of a lot of players on big wages and then try and approach the season to come back up again so it's all right for Norwich it's not so great for west Ham uh villa villa. Villa are kind of stuck in the middle between the two, I think. So it's got to be interesting. I don't think they've already planned, though. If they have planned, it's a bit defeatist, I isn't it? I guess you it? kind and... of look
0: at the activity in January, don't you? Because that's when clubs... It was like a it's stick or twist in January. It's do you build your squad and try and do something to stay in the Premier League? Or do you go, well, looks like we're going to be playing championship football? And we had West Ham. Breach bought in uh, check on loan with a view to a permanent deal. Jared Bowen, who was a decent bit of money spent on him. Norwich bought in Melvin City and Sam McCallum. I think it was. And a lot of people at the time said they're Championship signings. They're not Premier League signings. So I guess that's the ambition we're talking about. But I, I don't know, Nile. What do you make? Do, what do you think? Is that just them being sensible, or is that them that them going? Well, let's start getting our squad together for Championship football.
1: I think all you need to do is look at the money Norwich spent in the summer. Forget January. They spent a million pounds in the summer. Um, And, you know, they got promoted from the championship perhaps too early. We know they had this five or six year plan to get up into the Premier League. They managed to kind of exceed expectations and get up within the space of one or two under Daniel Farker. Um, And, you know, they spent a million pounds in the summer, which is just a trivial amount of money when you're thinking about the money that's been spent um, mm-hmm. across the Premier League over the last couple of seasons. And then, you know, they get, they get Liverpool on the first day of the season, the Friday night, the opening fixture, I remember it well. And they got, you know, beaten 4-1 by Liverpool on that day. Um, they were relying on Timu Pukki for goals at the start. And they probably felt like after the way they started, they had a bit of a chance of staying up. They thought, you know, we might be onto something here. But then Daniel Farkas started coming out after games and saying... How are you expecting us to compete against these sides when we've spent a million and they've spent 150, 200, 300 million? Manchester United uh, spent 400 and something million. So, you know, it, it's a fair point from Daniel Farker. But I thought, well, how you can't go the whole season saying that every time you lose a game. So I think Norwich did know that they were kind of wading into the unknown and they had a real difficult job on their hands to stay up with the money they wanted to spend. But I think Norwich City fans, although they'll be gutted that they're, they're going to go down this season, They have moments to remember from this campaign. You know, beating Manchester City was a big one for them in September. That was a huge result. And, you know, they've had some good moments where, you know, they've been treated to some decent football on display. They've not played turgid football at all. They've played probably some of the best football we've seen from a relegation threatened side in the last few seasons in the Premier League. So if that means the security of their football club for the future, the fact that they're going to finish bottom of the league, I mean, only by six points by the looks of things at the moment. I mean, I think Norwich have actually been better to watch and just better in general when for the neutral when the games have been on than Aston Villa and Bournemouth have this season and I know you don't get any prizes for that and I know fans would rather have stayed up but at least the club's on a sound financial footing they've not Mm. splashed silly cash in in an attempt to try and chase gold and they've done I think they've done themselves admirably this season if they do go down I don't think they'll go down um, with everyone saying oh they were dreadful I think they'll just go down with everyone saying that well they didn't have enough which is just the case of modern football but I think they'll be back Norwich, maybe not next season, perhaps a couple of seasons' time. But certainly, I think it's not the stupidest idea to have a plan.
0: They've certainly not done a Derby County. No, for sure. They've not embarrassed themselves. Or Stoke. Like right, Stefan. <laughs> yeah, or Stoke. They dropped like a stone. I was reading, I was going to something about Stoke City then, but we haven't got time on today's podcast to cover off Stoke City's downfall. Uh, we've got one final question, and that is from Stefan. I like. Uh, sorry, it's from Kelvin. Stefan, you've got this one. I like this question
2: yeah this is a good one so this is from kelvin on facebook everyone is realizing their new kit realizing i'll start that again this is from kelvin on facebook everyone is releasing their new kits for next season what was your favorite kit of all time from a team you don't support
1: shall i go first on this one because jim i know you're a bit more of a kit connoisseur than i am um, I've got about 80. So uh, well, <laughs>
0: Yeah, you go first while I refine my choices. I've got
1: about three and they're in frames and they're Pompey kits. So this is obviously one okay. which is not meant to be uh, your team. So I've got a couple. Um, an honourable mention for this one, which isn't a kit, but Stefan, you'll like this. It's the 1978 Scotland... Tracksuit, the Umbro tracksuit with the tapered shoulders, <laughs> which I do actually have a replica copy of—not a not an original, but a replica—in uh, my wardrobe, which I like to pull out every now and again. So I do like a good tracksuit top. So um, that would be my pick for for the tracksuit top, 1978 Scotland World Cup tracksuit, very very famous. I still get a lot of people when I wear it um, saying, oh, "I saw a Scotland tracksuit," and I was like, "It's not the the actual one, but it is, it's is meant to be like that." So yeah, um, but I have two favorites. Um, the first one that I'm going to talk about. Uh, is one from uh, a club in Brazil called uh, meduera and in 2013 they had a very 90s throwback kit. Uh it was that, around about that time when people were doing weird stuff on their kits, you know, there was one with the Simpsons was on one team's kit and there was another team who had a bow tie on their kit and stuff. Well, this one had the Cuban flag and a print of Che Guevara on the front of their kit, which is a really cool that. kit. Um It's to do with the fact that uh, Meduera actually visited Cuba on a preseason tour, I think, and Che Guevara actually watched a game um, in Cuba. So they kind of did that as a a kind of a a throwaway, a a nod to him, a throwback to him. So that was a really cool looking kit. But my favourite all-time kit is one that you will probably laugh at when you hear this. It is a kit uh, which was from 2006 and it was worn by green bank under 10s <laughs> and i'll tell you why, oh, yeah, I'll, tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's a very unique kit green bank under 10s are a, uh, obviously an under 10 team from lincoln in the uk and they actually asked they had a black kit at the time and it was a bit plain and a bit boring and they looked like referees so they actually asked the lead singer of motorhead Who's Lemmy Killmister, the very famous Lemmy. rocker with the, you know, the gravelly voice and I the warts it. and the cigarettes and the hat and the boots and the you know, he used to drink four bottles of Jack Daniels a day. They asked him if they could use the motorhead logo on the front of their shirts. Lemmy being the legend that he is, responded, Yes, I can let you do that. So they had Motorhead logo printed on the front of their shirt as a sponsor. It said Green Bank under 10s underneath it. And Lemmy met the team and had a photo with them all. And he said, you guys need to kick everything really, really hard, which is just uh, a very classic metal man who doesn't know much about football. But I'm a a big metal fan myself, big fan of Motorhead. And I just thought it was a really cool kit. So... Nice one. Green Bank Under 10s for your home kit from 2006 with the Motorhead logo on it. That would be my obscure pick for my favourite <laughs> kit, which isn't a Pompey one.
0: I've just Googled it and it's, uh, it's, it's a decent effort, but I don't think it's going to get anywhere near any of my kits. I've picked proper classics as well. I was going to go for the West Germany 1990 kit. Add if to you pick Holland
1: 1988, Jim... I swear to God, you are, aren't you?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, maybe. Let's see how we get. Yeah, I was going to go for West Germany 1990, but I thought I'd leave that to Stefan. That was a beautiful kit with the black, yellow and red, geometric kind of stripe across it. I thought Manchester United's kit in 1990, the blue away kit they had, was beautiful. And I hated Manchester United in 1990, as did most football cats. It just had those little Adidas trifoils all over it. That was a stunning Mm. kit. I was going to go for Holland's 1988 kit just because it's an absolute classic and it does what football kits need to do. And that is when you see that kit, you know instantly what team it is. Let's not go too <laughs> mad and away from the actual design that the kit should have. And it was it's classic Holland Orange. It's what you need to do, right? It's like, it's like when people go into Wagamama's
1: and order a chicken katsu curry. And I just think there are <laughs> other things on the menu, you know, guys, you don't have to order no. that.
0: No, you need to go... I mean, look at Barcelona's kit at the moment. Their new kit is lovely, but it looks like a Crystal Palace kit. So it's not quite right. But the one I'm going to go for is... I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Fiorentina kits. And their 1998-1999 kit, it was classic Fiorentina. It's the one that you often see people wearing with Badstuta on the back as well. And it was sponsored by Nintendo on the front. It's just just a classic kit. So I'm going to go for that one. That is my... uh, Favorite of all time. If I'm not allowed Holland, <laughs> 1998, 1988, which I was 100% going to go for. Go on, you can wrap
2: it up, Stefan. What's yours? It's, this is difficult for me as a Hearts fan. I'm going to choose two green kits, which isn't what I'd usually go for. But the first one is the uh, season where Ronaldo was at Barcelona. As a kid, I was always more of a Real Madrid fan because, well, because players like Raúl and whatnot. But there was one season where I switched my allegiance and that was when Ronaldo was at Barcelona in 1997 and when they played away they wore this turquoise green kit the real Ronaldo we should point out it was you wouldn't even design it today it was by Kappa it had a little red stripe down the middle blue and white and navy on the sleeves and just watching Ronaldo absolutely rocket in this Kappa kit for me that is what the 90s is all about absolutely loved it but
1: (laughs) They had a mad orange one at one point as well, Stefan, didn't they? Well,
2: they've, they've, to be, Barcelona have been real hit and miss with kits. I mean, they've had a lot of luminous kind of yellowy, orangey kits. Which, no, let's not go there. But this is one's really going to hurt. My favourite kit, I think, is a hips kit. No, surely not. You can't pick the kit of your rivals as your favourite kit. The, the, wait, we we said what what are your favourite kits by teams that you don't support, and I'm going to cross the Edinburgh boundaries here, and I'm going to go to Hibs. And in, I think... I don't know what year it was. I think it was ninety three, ninety four, or ninety four, ninety five. 95 Hibs had a green and purple kit, which was uh, vertical stripes, much like Inter Milan. It was sponsored by Cala. It had this really big, impressive badge on it, and it was a miter kit, and it had, it had the little miter thing going around the bottom of the sleeves <laughs> and with the collar, three buttons. And every time I look at that kit, I think, I wish that was a hearts kit. So for me, that is the sign of a world class kit. So I'm going to say it. I think one of my favourite kits of all time is the Hibs away 94 95 season kit. Wow, sorry. honestly, I've just I've, ju-
1: I've just googled it. It rem- that's the sort of kit I used to wear at school. In PE. <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. Do you not love it?
1: No, it is. It looks like um. What are they called? They're sweets. Bruiser bars. It looks like a bruiser bar.
0: (laughs) What I love about that question, Kelvin, and thank you very much for sending it in, is as we were talking, as one person was talking, you could hear the other two kind of Googling frantically to see those kits. So I hope (laughs) if you're listening to the podcast, you were doing exactly the same. Some classic kits there. And I found that Barcelona kit you were talking about, Stefan, while you were speaking, I found it on a second-hand kit site for £170. Bargain. So it depends how much <laughs> you what, like what, it. Was it I match wa- was, was it, it match worn by Brazilian good. Ronaldo? No, no, wasn't. No, oh. just a standard old kit. Right, so that is it for Football Social Daily. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Podcasts available right across the weekend as the football continues as well. And if you want to get the latest match reports team news match previews if you want to listen to those you can get them on your smart speakers if you've got an amazon alexa just say open sports social if you've got a google home device you can just say talk to sports social or you can find all the details and where you can find it on our new website sports-social.co.uk Niall Stefan, thank you very much nice one guys and we'll see you next time on football social daily Football Social Daily. Get daily news and updates on your team via your Amazon Alexa. Just ask. Alexa. Open Sports Social.